Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7 and streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and also on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. If any of you are interested in listening to Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a good place to to look. If you would like to get in touch with me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always reach me through my website. I'd love to hear from you wherever you are out there in this big round, round circulating world that we live on. And I would also like to thank Devine Dial for all the work she does at WPVM. She's holding us together, and Devine makes it possible in her great management style to allow everybody who contributes at the radio station to broadcast their work all, all over the place, all over the world. So thank you, Davine, for that. WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more. And today I have a guest on, fellow whom I've only met online. He works with a good friend of mine. Her name is Julia Cameron. She wrote a book titled The Artist Way, and you may have heard of that book. And Nick Kapasinski and, and Julia worked together uh, all of the time. And so I got to know Nick by way of Julia. She connected me with Nick. And, and, and funny enough, she connected me on a play that Nick was presenting on Zoom uh, last winter, back in the, in the winter times. And it was called Love in the DMZ, which was written by Miss Cameron. And so Nick, uh, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hey, Nave, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. And Nick, I want to start this interview by asking you to talk about how you feel when the seasons change and the earth starts to turn back from the longer days to the shorter days. We're now in summer and the earth is going back to less and less light in the Northern Hemisphere. So what are some of your reflections when that happens in, in your life? What do you think about? Well, it's interesting you put it that way. I, I'm still on the high of the long days. I love hitting this point in the year, the longest day of the year. I'm just very much enjoying these long days, specifically here in New Mexico where I'm at. We had a big heat wave that just broke, and we have some moisture now with the monsoons, which is really fabulous. I'm appreciating that, especially with the massive heat waves in the country right now. Yeah, there are a few of them. I was listening to WNYC in New York, and I think they're bumping around 100. And of course, the people out in Portland and Washington, Pacific Northwest, are also having that same experience. I'm in Taos, and you're in Santa Fe. For those of you listening out there, uh, beyond where Nick and I are, so and we're both sharing that time of the year here in the southwest or in northern New Mexico, when the rain begins to come, funny enough, they call it monsoon. It's really not a monsoon. It's more like a drizzle that sort of dampens the ground, and occasionally you get some thunder in, in the background. So, Nick, when you are experiencing the summertime and when you grew up in, in the summer times, what was it like for you as a boy in the summer? How did you relate to that? And the reason I'm asking is because I have deep connection with, with the warmer months. I always think of my soul being a bit more free in the summertime. Now that may not be true. I mean, 
it, the winner it may be just as free, but I think it's freer. How about you? Oh, I, I absolutely share that perspective. And I know people who don't, who, who yearn for those winter months and, and the holidays and, and all that they entitle. I was an only child. Summer meant running around a lot on my own, specifically out here, but other places I also lived. That's also when the wildlife comes out. Even when the bugs come out, you can study them in the grass. This feeling of things awakening and being in bloom has uh, always brought me great comfort and possibility. Spring is Friday evening and summer is Saturday. The fall is Sunday when I start worrying about going back to school. So <laughs> if, if, if that's a clumsy metaphor, I apologize. Well, I would say it was a really rather agile metaphor. I've not ever thought of it like that. And yet I think you, I think you have it right. Summer is Saturday night and people go out on Saturday night and that's what they do in the summertime as well. I do love summers, though. That's absolutely, absolutely true. As you have made your way through life, I know one of the big passions you have is writing and acting and being engaged in the arts on multiple levels, not only as a creative who generates poetry, also as a creative who, who makes things happen, a producer as well, how you dance with all of the talents you have. I think it's a mixture of my own interests and then what the world or the universe brings to me as well in the form of colleagues and opportunities. I think that that is maybe the most important part of the dance, interacting with many different people doing many different artistic things. You'll find these projects suddenly coming to you. Uh, you. You referenced the play that I did over the course of quarantine when I thought there wouldn't be any plays going on. And that came to me by way of Julia, which was originally a relationship built around reading poetry and doing a very different style of art. The more you put into the universe, the more you get back. And it is often in surprising ways and ways that push and challenge you. I used to be timid or reticent about challenging myself in spaces, specifically artistically, that I, that I hadn't been in before, maybe with a looming voice of perfectionism. And now I really embrace those surprises and find that those are the moments that afford us the greatest opportunity for growth and for the more interesting projects we find in our lives. Well, the play that I referenced earlier, Love and the DMZ, which was written by, by Julia Cameron, and we both call Julia Julia because we've known her a while now. And funny enough, the way that I got to know Julia was by way of poetry. And so somehow poetry embraces everyone. And once we get in that poetic community, we're always there. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the, one of the things I like about Julia's play, Love in the DMZ, and what I loved about the way you approach your character in that show when I watched it, it's very poetic. Although it's letters back between a, a husband and a wife, the husband being in Vietnam and his wife being at home, it's very, very poetic and crisp and quick. And it requires character development. So as an actor and a poet and a creative, when you are developing a character like the one you developed in 
the love in the DMZ. How did you go about doing that? Do you have animal images you work with? Do you work with voices? Do you work with uh, uh, rituals? I've gone through several evolutions with my relationship with acting in my life. And mostly what I find now is I'm simply searching for honesty. And Julia's work made it fairly easy for me to find an honest way to portray the character. Because while there is the melodrama of the war around the piece, as an actor, you are trying to internalize that. I'm a big researcher. So the <laughs> Ken Burns documentary was on 24-7 for you know months before the play came out. While there's that melodrama, the play really comes down to some very simple human elements that we can understand um, in almost any context or circumstance. Specifically in this piece, that's two individuals who have a sense of each other and this love for each other that they are trying to hold together despite circumstances that have made them different people, specifically them being apart during this war. Now, how do I speak honestly there? Well, that depends a lot on the person I'm acting across from. This is a two-person play, and it's read in letters. So it's a little bit different from dialogue. The bigger task for me is to listen to my counterpart's letters and respond honestly to them. If I can hear those letters anew, if I can hear the words striking me anew each time we did it, then I can respond honestly to them. And, and that can take many different forms. When you talk about honesty, it's such a big, big word. And we hear it all the time, Nick. I hear it like, you've, you've got to be honest with me, or I have to be honest with my work. I have to put something honest down on the page. I have to perform as a, an honest character. And I've always tried to explore the idea of honesty, and I don't somehow know if I'm ever getting at it or not. And the reason I say that is because when I've performed over the years, I tend to hide behind my technique. I can have charisma on stage and I can dance around and go in a great direction and people like it enough. And yet it's not as connected. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if my more superficial offerings sometimes, not always, but some of the times, maybe they're honest too in, a, in an odd kind of way. And when we talk about honesty, are we talking about exploring in an unbridled curiosity. I'm going to go inside and wallow in my emotionalism. And from that comes something that's more close to my soul or my core. What you're asking is a question of reaction versus performance. While I want to say it should be pure reaction, that's not entirely true. As a young actor, I absolutely had the same problem that you're talking about. I had an innate sense for performance. And I try and find that performance in rehearsal that gave me the reaction that I wanted from the director, from my fellow actors, whoever happened to be out there during rehearsal. And then I'm like, oh, okay, once I've got that reaction, I've got the role. And now I just have to recreate it. 
And what you'll find, especially with the stage, is if you do that, it will fail you and it will fail the audience. And you'll know it immediately because audiences are more keen than we give them credit for often. They can sense a performance, something that is manufactured and repeated. I I don't know what it is about us as people, but once we sense that, it is uninteresting. And perhaps because we don't feel the sense that it might go somewhere unexpected. To speak again to that binary, I now err much more on the side of reaction. I almost want to be completely in my own world, forgetting the audience, listening to the words, and simply reacting from the space of the character that I've created internally. But we do have to recognize that there are people out there, right? We do have to project. We we can't turn away from them completely. I've been lucky enough to have enough classical training that a lot of those instincts are simply there no matter what once I step out on a stage. Not going to make grievous errors in terms of the performance. I were going to prescribe the route to a good performance on stage, I'd say have all that fundamental training and then forget it all. Your body will remember the fundamentals and then you'll be free to have those honest reactions. That's been my experience as as well. You talk about the classical training. You say you've had enough classical training. And one of the things I like to do on this show, people listen and tune in and I assume, and I'm only assuming this because maybe it's my own aspiration, but I'm assuming that some of the people out there are interested in the creative process, creativity, if you will. And some of them would like to write, maybe take photographs, do all kinds of of creative work. And of course, I always recommend Julia's book, The Artist Way, to get them started in that direction. Moving in a direction of acting, when you talk about the classical training, Can you give our audience some idea of what that means? How does that work? There are as many schools as as acting teachers out there. What I'm speaking to specifically with classical or conservatory training, we're going to talk about voice, breathing, movement, classes, dancing, classical acting, Shakespearean acting, Stanislavski method acting, forgetting all that Stanislavski stuff and doing more modern, you know, mammoth type of stuff. But having all those bases, you could equate it to a sports analogy. You practice all these movements that don't necessarily correspond to what you may have to do in the game. Because the game can change at any moment and it requires improvisation. But you need the foundational elements so that there is that performance aspect that is necessary for the audience to enjoy. The rest is improvisational. The audience needs to feel from you that the reaction might not be what they expect. I like the idea of talking about training because when one does art, there's the drive to do it. There's the desire to do it, the need can combine the drive, the desire, and the need with study, with working, the rigor, with the joy of learning how to do something. And you put all that together, 
then you end up with something you can can work with. And I like that you said that at the end of the day, it's improvisational. No matter how much work you do, it's still improvisational. And I've often thought when I talk to people about improvisational work, they go, oh, my God, I can't improv. I don't know how to do that. Of course, how do we do life if it's not an improv? What else is life? And the question to me is, how do you transfer that natural improvisational tendency to respond to whatever is in front of you into some kind of art form that has yeah. that has energy? Yeah, I think that's very difficult and it comes easier to some than to others. I was very difficult on, on that end. The bigger your ego, the harder it is to get around that problem. I had a, a big ego. It was a defense mechanism, mainly. And so I knew I had a gift for performing, but I was terrified of performing as well. And to this day, I continue to have terrible stage fright, anxiety leading up to a performance. It does seem to disappear for me once I step out onto the stage. In preparation for going out on the stage as a young actor, I would tend to err on that performative side that we were talking about earlier. I knew there was something that worked. People said, well, he's good at that. We can see he's good at that. I wasn't doing the honesty part. I think part of what started to break that for me, I had a director who was from the old school. We were rehearsing a play. I had gone out and done my scene and the director stopped the performance and she just started berating me personally, breaking me down, breaking me down to the point where I was nearly sobbing. And she said, now do it again. She continued this process until I was so broken. I didn't really know where I was anymore. I just went out and I, I kind of had no choice but to just cling to the lines that were being said to me and just try and respond to them. You know, we finish whatever take it is. And she goes, now there was a little bit of honesty. I, I know this sounds medieval, not saying that this is the only path, but that was probably the beginning of my understanding that I had to drop the ego when I came onto the stage. And that, in fact, while I was so scared of doing that by way of doing it, I created the performances I was always looking for and the moments that I was always hoping for as an actor. That's interesting. Director you were working with, did she come at you in a vicious way or was it more of a rigorous critique way that intended for you to lift up and grow? It wasn't vicious. She used to say there are such things as fast actors and slow actors. Fast actors, the one that I was, which is this person gets it really quickly. And the first read through, they're fabulous with it because they're just going on instinct. But then once they have it, they're bored and they don't have another place to go with it. What they do is they try and distill that original performance into something that can just be regurgitated and they don't move on past it. I was quite young. I'm, I'm talking about 18 when I was working with her. I was somebody who had been a little bit fast-tracked into a conservatory environment. I had all the laurels and she felt like this kid's ego needs to be broken 
down for him to reach his potential. So I don't think it was, I don't think it was vicious. It was old school, which will substitute for medieval. It was a powerful experience. Moving forward, that's very much my approach now, which is, okay, my first read through on this script, I can see how it might work. But that is purely a vision of my own. And anything that goes up in theater or film involves so many other people. Great, you have that vision, but then you have to be willing to let it evolve and change and get to that honest place by way of being honest uh, with your collaborators. You said you had the big ego, and it made me think about this term, big ego, that we, we use all the time. Oh, she has a big ego. He has a big ego. The big ego got in the way. And I wonder, Nick, if that's the proper way to describe it. You said more the defensive ego. And I don't think we can ever get rid of our ego. Our ego is with us. And maybe our ego is always big because we are by nature big as creatures. We, we have a big creative potential. We have big life potential. We have a lot of bigness about us because that just seems to me to be how human beings operate in the world. Could we change the idea of the big ego to, to the defensive ego? Give it some more adjectives. Yes, yeah, certainly it, it deserves a lot more nuance. I don't mean to discount ego within the context of the art that we're talking about. When you were asking me earlier, how do you approach a character? Well, one of the first things you have to figure out is what pleases that character's ego, what repulses that character's ego, what propels it, et cetera, et cetera. Those are some of the most important boundaries that you create early on that allow you to be honest within the context of the dialogue. Yes, we can talk about defensive ego and anxiety. I think that another big term we have to pull from that is perfectionism, which is a big one that weighs on artists of all stripes when approaching any project. It can be a very destructive instinct, if that's the right word. I wanted every performance to be perfect, especially as a young actor which is the absolute wrong approach. The only way that you get to anything good and honest and relatable, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say in, in any art form, is to fail and fail again. To be all right with failure as a part of the process. To welcome it as a stepping stone to getting to the place you want to get to. Well, I think Julia's book, The Artist Way, and all of her other writing thoroughly address this dilemma of perfectionism that we all seem to be carrying around with us. And I've come around to thinking perfectionism, of course, is an impossible proposition. We can never achieve it. And maybe the reason we're not able to achieve it is because, in a sense, the universe is a perfect construction and we're living within perfection. And for us to try to achieve what we translate or interpret as perfection is a fool's errand, really, because we don't have to achieve that. All we have to do is show up and be in the process. 
And it's also not interesting. Perfect art is relatively uninteresting art. It's certainly not what we go to the theater or the museum for. We want something that challenges the spaces in between, which is a very human experience. The way we experience what you put as this perfect world is imperfectly. We are not always pleased with this very perfect creation. And that's what we enjoy seeing and exploring in the arts. And that's what's interesting about it. And that's what's interesting, say, about a fire. You watch a fire burning in the fireplace. And in a sense, it's deconstructing itself. The wood is being consumed by the flames. And it's all falling apart. Eventually, it will cool down and be ashes. And it's just incredible to watch it because of the way it moves. And I was thinking on this subject of ego, as you were talking, you got me so inspired by saying the defensive ego. So I just wrote down some ego adjectives. What if we came at our egos and used terms like, oh, Nick has an open ego today. Oh my goodness, his welcoming ego, happy ego. Oh, the big ego, the interested ego, the generous ego, the curious ego, the sleepy ego, the hungry ego, the joking ego. And when you put it in that frame, it gives a sense of Vitality, don't you think? Absolutely. I love the sleepy ego. When we're talking about art and the gap between perfection and our experience of this earth, the spider wakes up in the morning and it builds this perfect immaculate web. Beautiful thing. And the spider never thinks to itself, you know, man, I haven't caught a fly in this corner in days. And it's a really windy crappy spot. And you know what? I'm done with this. I'm not going to build it this morning. The spider just wakes up and does this out of habit. So now we do have the consciousness and capacity to look forward and backward enough that we have those thoughts. So we need something else to get us there in the morning, something to bridge that gap. That gap is the place where we set our egos and those ontological things that we hold on to that set the boundaries of, of how we direct those egos and also the space that art occupies and what makes it interesting to us. I would love to just switch a little bit here from your acting work to your poetry work, how you and Julia got together with with poetry. And Julia and I met and we, our first conversation was all about poetry. Oh yeah, I write poetry. And she said, I, oh yeah, me too. So we share that, that in common with a lot of people. And I know that I'm looking forward to connecting with you more poetically as time goes on and, and we maybe can get together and swap some poems or whatever. But before we move too far into the show, and I'd love it if you would switch your energy a bit and call on your curious, um, maybe your little sleepy, easygoing ego and read a few, read a couple of poems for us, Nick. Do you think you could manage such a job? Well, I think I can. In the context of being friends with Julia, when our friendship was young, she had a poetry reading at a local spot in Santa Fe. And she asked me for a poem to read ahead of her reading. She said it, it helped her to read another artist before she went into her own work. This is the poem that I gave her. This is called Closed Forms. One. 
All great journeys end at the sea, he said, testing the air. She was silent. In genuine devotion, she had found some showmanship in discipline, or was it heroism in torture? I have seen her in the grocery store, grieving whole aisles of strange spices, aboard Cleopatra, fed up with fidelity, body, and name. A fearsome ballerina, an eager and bruised thing, her soles cut and beaten to yield to necessary bones. A gasping Persephone, spasming in hysterical ecstasy in the middle of a sparse gray field. Two, smoke and fog share the commute, morning in blue mountains. Sodden ground shrivels and heaves in twilight dank, swallowing sweat and forest. He grips a wet rock. A dead tongue speaks and I feel my flesh divide. Three. Still as a child, he rises and pushes into the harsh thickets, the branches winding and unwinding until he can feel her no more and meet again with time. The cold wind penetrates, the stem freezes, and light and song retreat as one. I love that line, a dead tongue speaks. Do you have another one for us? Sure. So Julia and I used to have a, a meeting. Every Thursday night, we'd show up at the same restaurant, a little place in town, and we'd bring poems to each other. And part of what I loved about this ritual was that I had to have a poem ready no matter what for Julia. Oftentimes, what I would bring, I'd qualify over and over to her. I'd say, it's, it's not done. It's not there. It's, it's not even very good. But there's something there. I, I want to try and suss it out. Often, we'd read each other's poems to each other. And in the reading from one another, we find what that something is. I thought I'd bring one of the poems that I brought to her on one of those nights. I like trudging up and down the mountains uh, in the Sangre de Cristos out here in Santa Fe and exploring. Um, and one mountain in particular, Sun Mountain, I tend to go to more than others. And Julia had said, well, why don't you write about Sun Mountain? And I went home and I said, well, what does one write about a mountain? And I had no idea, but this is what came from it. Sun Mountain, old stone soldier, windswept and bald. From the flat below, he appears to stand like a near perfect half circle, a geodesic dome of red-brown clay and spidering stone that glows gold in the sunlight, connected by a sloping rock bridge to his sister, Moon. She is far less flawlessly formed, shadowy and covered in wrinkles and ravens, with a vertical granite profile that she hides beneath prolific pinyon like a dark green veil. Several bumpy peaks wreath her summit like a crown, and a long sloping side to the south makes her appear like a reclining lover with her dress heaped over her hips, 
cascading into the Pecos Valley behind. Moon's gaze is fixed forever at sun's back, jealous, protective, and scheming, every bit the woman behind the man, her arms stretched out in front of her to create the saddle that connects them, resting gently on the middle of sun's back, as he presides over Santa Fe below, like a stout general. Sun faces the west, leading the slow march of the ancient Sangre de Cristo range, giving him the air of a, diminu a diminutive but certain Napoleon, being dwarfed at his back by Adelia and the giants beyond, who stretch up through Colorado in an unbroken column. Falcons soar and careen before him and return like faithful scouts. Looking out over the flat high desert as he does, which stretches out lonely and largely interrupted in all directions ahead. It is easy to imagine Sun is at the head of a great army, moon at his side, forever preparing for a titanic clash with the towering Jemez to the Northwest or the wild and jagged Sandias to the South that will never come. Now I'm curious, Nick, why do you think that's not finished? Perhaps, my perfectionism getting in the way again. Poetry is a difficult art in that it marries so many aspects of writing in terms of tone, meaning, word choice, all these things coming together. I think I have a sense of when all those things come together, which I don't necessarily feel with that poem. I, I feel that the ideas are there and that it's waiting for me to carve the excess off of it, if that makes any sense. Well, it does make a lot of sense. I have the same concerns. Maybe I don't have them now as much as I once did. Uh -huh. I've kind of relaxed a little bit into my identity as a poet with quotes around it, and I've removed the quotes. I'm just now thinking, well, I'm a poet. I write poetry, and it comes out pretty well. And, and some of my work has legs, and some does not. And I'm more now willing just to let that have its life, if you will, and not get too fussed about it. I absolutely have some work to get to that point. <laughs> With poetry, it is much tougher for me to not compare it to the pantheon of masters in my mind. That's definitely a defect. I wouldn't say it's a defect. I would say that it's a cultural a conditioning that we've all experienced and people have it all the time. And we tend to compare ourselves to the masters coming back again to the artist way, the domain changer about creativity that Julia wrote to the artist way addresses that. Let God take care of the quality and you take care of the quantity, I believe is the quote. Yes, that is exactly right. I think Julia has been a huge help for me with that, especially in a context like this, where we're on the radio, I want to qualify things. That's also why I chose a poem like that, that I didn't feel like was perfect, but was a wonderful exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm getting better with that. <laughs> How could we not? I remember when Julia and I first met back in 1995 and she invited me to be part of a project she was working on in Taos which she named the Artist Way Creativity Camp and the first camp I was helping Julia and I was there and participating and co-teaching or you know all the things one does 
And Julia introduced me as a wonderful, well-known, great American poet. And I'm sitting over there thinking, who, me? You're talking to me? And of course, I rose up and didn't deny it. But I do recall thinking, is, is that even possible? So what I love about the way Julia approaches her work and also her friendships, she has an aspirational nature for everyone in the world. She believes we can all rise up and do it. And there's something comforting about that. And I think that fits into the rising up ego, the believing ego, the creative ego, all of those things the ego is designed to do, including be big. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. There is something fundamentally profound about letting go and not measuring your work against anybody else, but being proud of your own work for what it is. And not necessarily even proud, but simply doing it, doing the work is an end in itself. It's becoming a theme here that we're speaking about, the capacity not only to allow oneself to fail, but to enjoy the process of reaching, not quite getting there, going back, doing it over again and over again, not necessarily with the intention, hope, or desire of reaching some perfection or a mountaintop, but that the process in and of itself is fabulously important on its own. And it's interesting, too, we speak of failure as if it's a negative, and yet failure is the primary currency of success. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is some character out there in a world that none of us can even dwell in. And I love the idea of thinking of failure as a very valuable currency, like gold. And again, I think that if we ever reached perfectionism, it would be boring as heck. There's not a lot there. And, and when I think of the people that I admire most and their voices specifically in poetry, which we're speaking of right now, their individuality, perhaps, yes, measured against others. It's in the absence of perfection that I find their specific voice and find what is so interesting and meaningful to me. So respecting our own individualism and individual perspective is a critical part of that. I agree with you, Nick. Very well said. And as we move closer to the end of our time together, I just wanted to reflect on the ego idea again and say that one of the things I've enjoyed about this conversation is your thoughtful ego has been with us. Your curious ego has been with us today. Your happy ego has been with us. And so I love the idea of having these conversations that allow that kind of fluidity. Well, I've appreciated the conversation immensely, Nave, and I love that we took some philosophical turns and took a winding road through this conversation. That's, that's always a very enjoyable thing for me, and I will certainly think a lot about what was brought up here. I also want to, just a quick plug, if people do want to check out Love in the DMZ, we did do a recorded version of that Zoom that people can find on juliacameronlive.com, which is the website for all things Julia, but under a tab there called Julia's Art, 
If you go down to plays, you can not only read several plays that she's written, but if you click on Love in the DMZ, there is a recording of that performance. Yes, JuliaCameronLive.com is an excellent resource for, as you said, all things Julia. I've been on that website many times. And in any of you out there listening, if you're curious about how to access Julia's work, Julia Cameron Live is a good place to do that. And Nick, if people wanted to reach out to you, how would they do that? <laughs> well, I've been absolutely terrible about setting up my own social media or websites. You can look out for me specifically if you're in the Santa Fe area. I think we're getting stage back on its feet soon. I'm working with a, a new stage company called Stage Santa Fe. Hopefully we'll have a new theater up here in Santa Fe soon great company of actors and directors there. And otherwise, I'll be creating a website soon. Maybe I can revisit with you, Nave, and I have that up and running and we can we can plug all that work. Well, we could certainly do that. And if anyone would like to reach out to, to Nick, you can always reach me, jamesnave.com, and I can send you information and point you in the, in the direction of a conversation with Nick. So just like I've had. Who knows? We, we can talk. That's right, Nick. Can't we talk? Yes. <laughs> so my friend, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was my absolute pleasure, Nave. Thank you so much for having me on. So there you go, my friends, a conversation with Nick Kapusinski. I always enjoy talking about creativity and perfectionism and how we get things done. I've been having a fair number of conversations with people about perfectionism, and as Nick pointed out in his conversation today, he said, I'm always trying to, be, trying to be perfect, and so often I hear people say that. And as I said in the interview with Nick, perfectionism is something we don't have to aspire to because the universe is perfect. And so if it's perfect, we really don't need to do anything to achieve perfection because we have already achieved it. And yet within that sense of perfection that I'm talking about, everything is changing, constantly moving, rearranging itself. And when you think about art and making the creative effort to show up at the page or whatever you're going to do, you really are showing up to change things, to rearrange things, to make things a little bit different than they were before you showed up at the page or well, at the camera lens or the, the stage or wherever you're showing up, even in front of your tomato plants. And tomato plants are, are growing right now. They won't be in for another month or so, little ripe tomatoes on the sandwiches. I used to love to eat tomato sandwiches when I was a boy. I was living in western North Carolina, and one of the things I remember about that time growing up in, in the mountains, as we used to call it, and people still do, I remember how my mother and father and, and grandmother and grandfather would, would always go out to the garden. And we had big gardens back then, or at least my little boy memory thinks the gardens were big but i remember those tomatoes from those big tomato plants head high tomato plants of course now they're not so head high they're more like waist high for me when i stand next to a tomato plant but back then they were head high and i would harvest the tomatoes and take them in and my mother would slice the tomatoes and 
put the tomatoes on on white bread and a little mayonnaise and 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 sprinkle some salt and and serve those tomatoes for lunch and i absolutely loved those tomatoes and even to to this day when i find summer coming round and can find myself some good ripe juicy tomatoes i have that same sense of 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 longing maybe of joy of running running free in the garden if you will as as a child and when you think about creativity and standing beside your tomato plants or whatever you're you're doing and and you fold the idea of perfection into to these efforts that we make it starts to make some sense that perfection is always with us I mean, my goodness, when you when you eat a fresh tomato on a sandwich, if if that's not perfection, I, I don't know what is. And when I remember those tomato plants in the gardens all those years ago, I don't remember how many tomato plants there were. I don't know, remember how many rows we had in the garden. I don't really remember how much corn or okra or squash or lettuce we had in the, in the garden. What I remember is just the garden and the freedom. And so when you think of perfection, and you think of it from that point of view, not from some boxed, proposition that requires you to get everything right more perfection from the flourishing lovely blossoming of a garden or or any other thing that's growing when you think of it like that it's pretty easy to stop thinking that you want to do everything perfectly and just start dabbling around in in the dirt in, in the muck my mother who was a wise wise woman always said if you want to make sure your child grows up to be a happy, well-adjusted adult, then just let your child grow like a weed. Don't confine the child. Let the child grow. And, of course, weeds don't know they're weeds. Weeds are free like all the rest of the plants. They're growing. They're doing what they must do in order to make their cycle throughout the seasons. And continuing a little bit further on the idea of perfectionism, I've been doing a project lately called the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. And the idea behind the Imaginative Storm Writing Project is to let your imagination just run wild and free and not worry about perfectionism. It's a dance between the rational mind and the imaginative mind, and your rational mind is just waiting for your imaginative mind to ask it to dance. So with the imaginative storm in mind, I would like to read you a piece I recently wrote in, in one of the stormy sessions. I like to call them stormy sessions, like the thunderstorm coming across the mountains. This setting of this piece takes place in the 1960s in western North Carolina and it's it's titled men to match our mountains when I was growing up in the 1960s men to match our mountains appeared on every city workers badge sign logo billboard and in all the windows of the Asheville Chamber of Commerce but the wise Appalachian grandmothers who sat on porches in the summertime, they told a different story. They said the mountains were a million women, a million years old, giving birth to all creatures that blossomed, bloomed, crawled, flew, and swam. 
The grandmother said, The mountains are gentle, furious, wet, green, unforgiving, full of life. Good Lord, what did those men think when they wrote men to match our mountains? Those men could never match the mountains, the duality, the fluidity, the ancient root systems, the quiet rocks, the wind through the trees. I wonder what the mountains would say if you ask them, what are you? They might say, I bet they would say, we are mountains, mountains, mountains. And for those of you who live around mountain territory, like Asheville, North Carolina and the Appalachians, you know how moist and rich those mountains are and, and how, how they will em embrace you. And they can also be furious and wild and rugged and even dangerous. So in this idea of creativity and the idea of perfectionism, all you have to do is look out on the land, the land around you, and you will see enough perfectionism to last you 12 lifetimes and that's all you know and all you really need to know when it comes to showing up at the page or wherever you're going to show up and make some effort to do some kind of creative work. And on that note what I'd like to do now is play a song for you. A friend of mine sings beautifully. His name is Big John Scherer and the song is titled Carolina in the Morning and there are two reasons why I want to play this song for you. One, it's a beautiful song, and John Scherer has a great, fabulous, deep bass voice, and his guitar work is, is spectacular. Two, when I was growing up picking those tomatoes, we would get up early in the morning and tune in to a radio show on the AM dial and listen to, to Farmer Russ, the, the morning farm show. And the theme song for the morning farm show was... You guessed it, Carolina in the Morning. So, with that in mind, I'd like to play that song for you and hope that when you hear it, it will bring some memories of your childhood back to you, no matter where you grew up. Here it is, Big John Scherer, Carolina in the Morning. Aladdin's lamp, only a day. 
And here's what I'd pray Nothing could be finer Than to be in Carolina In the Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. And that was Big John Scherer playing his guitar and singing his music. I've always loved music as, as much as I've loved poetry. And I have never been able to quite sing like Big John sings. And what I mean by that is hit those notes. You know, all my life I wanted to be able to hit those accurate notes, get those notes right, and sing in key. And so the more I tried to sing in key, like Big John Shera naturally does, although I do know John's practiced quite a bit over his, his lifetime, that's what he, he does all the time. So naturally he's going to be able to, to hold forth and with a beautiful singing voice. And, of course, I, I always tried to sing on key. I would sing, Summertime and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Well, hey, that's a little off key, uh, I guess you noticed. And then one day I, I realized I didn't have to try to sing back to perfectionism, back to being perfect. I realized I could just talk it like I'm talking right now. Summertime and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Now, I'm not quite hitting the notes, but I am enjoying the way the sounds come out of my out of my head, out of my body, out of my mouth, or or Leonard Cohen. Now Leonard Cohen was, I think, a fantastic singer, and Leonard Cohen really was able to write some of the best lyrics ever written. And when he rendered them on stage, his voice was fantastic. Again, I realized, well, I'll never be able to sing like Leonard Cohen, but I can talk it. I can find my voice or let my voice find me. You know, like I could say, Suzanne takes you down to her place by the river. She, she feeds you tea and oranges, come all the way from China, and just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her, she gets you on her wavelength, and she lets that river answer that you've always been her lover, and you want to travel with her, and you want to travel blind, and you think, well, maybe you can trust her because you've touched her perfect body with your mind. And of course, the song goes on, and I've finally given myself permission to strum it on my guitar and, and talk behind it. So what I am saying, and somehow we've gone from, from Julia Cameron's artist way to Nick's perfectionism, to poetry and and now to Big John Scherer and somehow we worked our way from all of that through the tomato patch through Western North Carolina mornings in the summertime to the singing voice back to what we all have we all have a voice and I just want to say as I close that we so often are talking about how we have to find our voice in writing in art in singing and I've begun to think it might be the other way around. Perhaps it's time to allow our voices to find us. And rather than trying to sing like the great stage performer, 
or somebody like Big John Cher, and I love Big John's voice. It's an inspiration to me. So instead of being jealous of Big John's ability to hit all the notes, I take inspiration from it, and I can speak it like I'm speaking now, and like we've been speaking for the last hour or so. And on that small note, I would like to say goodbye, and thank you for tuning in to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering I am your host, James Nave, and we're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI. FM out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. Really do appreciate that, Walter. And I'd like to also let you know you can reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. If you would ever like to have a correspondence with me, I'm always open. My door is open. I would love to get to know know you better. Thank you, Devine Dial, for all the good work you do at WPVMFM. If you're ever interested in connecting with me in a, in a lovely workshop gathering situation, I'm always on on Zoom every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, the Imaginative Storm Prompt of the Week. It's something that you can join anytime you like. Our door is always open, imaginativestorm.com, if you would like to write with me and also with Allegra Houston, who's there as well. So I really appreciate your time, your attention, and thank you ever so much for tuning in. And I do hope you tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.